Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. Once upon a time, in the dark ages of the year 2010, a person named Beckett Graham read a book about Gilded Age heiresses and searched the internet for a podcast to further her knowledge. Well, sound of crickets. She didn't find what she was looking for, so she phoned a friend that she'd only known online, how modern, and asked her to start a podcast. The rest, as they say, is history. The beginning. Hello and welcome to the third Q&A episode. We haven't done one in a while and it was really past time. 2016 was our last Q&A. <laughs> That's a long time ago. So we sourced some questions that we didn't answer in the other two episodes from the lovely members of the History Chicks podcast lounge. We got so many questions, in fact, about triple the amount that we're able to cover on this episode. So if we didn't get to yours, we are very sorry. We, we tried our best and we got to a lot. Thank you so much for submitting all the questions. You were right off of the starting block there with um, questions. So thank you so much for that. What is the History Chicks podcast lounge, you ask? Well, before we get to the questions, a little diversion. The lounge is our community on Facebook and everyone can participate. Everyone can comment and um, start posts. So it is a very lively place. So if you are not a member of the lounge, please feel free to join us. Here's how you do it. You go to our Facebook page, The History Chicks, and right in the middle in a little blue box, it will say join group and just click that. Answer the questions to prove your family. <laughs> Kindred spirits. Friend or foe. <laughs> and um, then you're in. And it, it's pretty fun. We have all kinds of things in there from trivia to a feature we call To Your Own Horn Tuesday, where your accomplishments, big or small, are fair game for sharing. It is like grown up show and tell. It is. <laughs> I think about that every week. And trivia, it's trivia is so cool. It's worldwide. It's held every Saturday. Different time zones, obviously. Here, it's three o'clock in the afternoon, but the woman that runs it is in Northern Ireland. So it's like eight o'clock at night or something for her. And then there's people from Australia that it's like very first thing in the morning. It's really fun. It's super casual. If you win, she writes your name on a piece of paper with like, <laughs> an award, like a goblet drawn on it. That's the prize. And I honestly think that sometimes there's more competition to get like the lowest score than the highest one. Oh, Just equal bragging rights. Uh, <laughs> as far as I can see, I don't go every week, but I did it with my mom a couple weeks ago and she had so much fun. Yeah. But every Sunday we get a theme to bake for the week. We bake up something that's related to the subject at hand. This week it's Jane Addams. So something that Jane Adams inspires you to bake, you bake. And then on Sunday, you show a picture of it. I did that. Did you do one this week? I Well, I did. I'm waiting for confirmation from the people at the museum. So I hope I can. Um, the um, museum? <laughs> yeah. Wow. I, I don't want to spoil a surprise, but oh, well, when this airs, 
You'll have already shown it. What was it? I thought I was being really clever making the original Palmer House brownie recipe. Well, very good. Well, um, they used to have cooking classes there and it wasn't elaborate cooking. Jane Addams was concernicus, my favorite word, Mm -hmm. that since everyone was kind of operating on the knife edge of, you know, having enough fuel to cook things and et cetera, women of the neighborhood pressed for time and money were relying too much on unhealthy convenience foods. Even though more healthful options were available, this isn't necessarily a healthful food, but I saw a mention of some cooking classes where they showed a simple cake, spice cake Mm -hmm. that they made in cooking class. And so that is what I made. It is not elaborate because it wouldn't have been. It sure tastes good. And if I could show you a picture of it right now, it is, um, I'm not that good at fractions. Five eighths gone, six eighths (laughs) gone. It's mostly gone. Yeah. Which is more than I can say for my brownies, which are not at all like modern day brownies. They're more like a quiche. There's a pound of butter in there. Oh, is it the flourless? Well, there is. No, I got it right from the Palmer House website. There is a very little bit of flour in it. Yeah. But yeah, it does taste like a flourless chocolate cake. Yep. A pound of butter, eight eggs for a regular nine by 13 pan. Wow. So probably not something the average denizens of Whole House would be able to. No, not at all. No, this is for the fine ladies of the ladies pavilion at the 1893 World's Fair. Mrs. Palmer had her cook whip up something that they could put into box lunches and have at the fair. So this is for the shishi ladies. Did you read that the Palmer House is going under? They're closing it. (gasps) As of, I want to say, two days ago. No, I did not. Oh, that is that is so. uh. I used to work for a company that had offices on South Michigan Avenue, and I would fly in from Pittsburgh at least once a month. And they always put us up at the Palmer House. I stayed there so many times. We actually had a few nights of our honeymoon. We stayed at the Palmer House because we got married in Chicago. Well, there you go. A little piece of personal history. (laughs) I know. Okay, that's enough. Thanks for listening. Bye. (laughs) So the questions came rolling in and they seemed to fall into three broad categories. Former subjects, behind the scenes, and hypothetical situations. So the first section will be former subjects. Rebecca asked, who is the one chick you keep coming back to? The one you keep thinking of even after your research and the podcast are done? The one you keep finding yourself comparing other chicks to? I have had this same answer um, to a slightly different question. Who's your favorite person you've ever covered? Now, the reason that I keep coming back to Josephine Baker, the surprise I experienced while researching her The resilience she showed. I mean, she had to start over and over and over. She adopted children of every color and many nationalities in an era when that was so outer limits, you know, like so beyond what people might do. Her goal, if everyone's brought up together, the world can be at peace, etc. I mean, she was so far ahead of her time. She had friends in low places. She had friends in high places. She had enormous bravery to defy the Nazis, not once, but multiple times. I am so impressed by someone who really came from nothing, a background where she had to sell pieces of coal that she climbed up and took off of the tops of railroad cars. A little hand reaching up to grab one old carrot from under a vegetable seller's table to the point where she's friends with the likes of Grace Kelly. I just really cannot get over the scope and the breadth of her story. 
Mm-hmm. The way she died, she launched a comeback, and after the first night, there was rave reviews, and she died at the top again. I mm-hmm. loved it. Yeah. No, that's a good one. I read the question a little bit differently. I keep coming back to Elizabeth Cady Stanton, not just because she and I are both moms that are trying to get things done outside of momdom. I related to her a lot in that level. But because of her relationship with Susan B. Anthony, I just love the way that the two work together. And quite honestly, Beckett, I think of it a lot when you and I are doing stuff because mm-hmm. they would disagree on things, obviously, but they never did it in, in public. They always went off and calmly discussed it, came up with an answer that they were both comfortable with, and then presented that answer as a united front. They also like filled in on a personal level. When Elizabeth was writing things, Susan B. Anthony would come and help out with her kids just so that they could get the project done. They worked together so well. So I think about that an awful lot. See, that's good. (laughs) I was going to ask you defensively, which one am I? Oh, <laughs> but I think we're both a mix, maybe, of both of them. Susan yeah, I- B. Anthony was a known curmudgeon, so that's probably me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sad. Hannah wants to know a lot of your subjects seem to have unhappy childhoods. Do you think their early traumas pushed them into proving themselves or held them back from achieving still more? You know, funnily enough, up until this most recent episode that we just did, I would have said that, unfortunately, an unhappy childhood is almost like a prerequisite, it seems like. But I just don't know. Is it because they were forced to fight against things? But Mary Terrell didn't have a bad childhood. Mm-hmm. And achieved greatness. Um, And then you've got Clara Bow on the other side coming from an extraordinarily broken home and great poverty, but with the advantage of great beauty. So I just don't know. You know, it just varies person to person. I think a poor childhood could break some people. True. And then some, I don't know that it really mattered whether it was bad or good. I thought of Marie Curie, who had a very difficult childhood in Poland under Russian rule. She couldn't study the things she wanted to study, but she had this brilliant scientific mind. And I don't know that she would have ultimately not achieved greatness in the scientific realm, despite her very difficult childhood. I think there are just so many ways to have a difficult childhood. You've got Beatrix Potter basically forced into being a recluse. Mm-hmm who was squeezed into, uh, you know, her art and her scientific exploration into mushrooms, just like a toothpaste tube. You squeeze the rest of her and she comes out. Same thing with Ada Lovelace. You know, her creativity was squeezed out, but like there's a weak point, you know, (laughs) and all the toothpaste came out the one end. So I don't think so. I don't think that a bad childhood is the key to success? At least I hope not. Um, and then you've got Empress Sissy, who had a glorious childhood with her father, which ended up biting her in the end as it didn't prepare her for her future life. And then you have Coco Chanel, who had a horrible childhood as an orphan and really became a survivor. And I think that's what motivated her for the rest of her life. So she wouldn't have had that motivation to survive and, yeah, cuddle up to the Nazis because she felt she had to. Um, I don't think she would have done that if she had a happy childhood. So I think that might have propelled her to her, you know, what she was successful in. So I don't think there's an answer. Roll the dice. There you go. (laughs) 
Susan wants to know, was there a moment when you were like, dang, we need to focus more on women of color? I just noticed this past year, there seems to have more of a focus. I just don't know that that's true. I will say back in the dark ages, and I have talked about this before, we covered Betty Crocker. And at that time, we thought, oh, wouldn't it be great to cover another icon of product packaging, Aunt Jemima? And we quailed at that because at the time, this was year one, we had not yet covered any other person of color. And it would have been inappropriate, I think, to start with Aunt Jemima. And I'm glad we waited because through the course of the remaining years, we gradually covered so many figures without which we would not have been able to understand the story of Aunt Jemima. And I think that's why you're seeing now our willingness to cover more people of color as we feel that we have the background to treat the subjects respectfully. Yeah, I actually tracked it out because we covered Ella Fitzgerald in our first year. She was our first woman of color. I have the years here in front of me. I'm obviously not going to read them. The first year we were a little, maybe a little slow to get started. I don't know. But once we got going this next year, we didn't shy away from them. In the first year or so, I think we were choosing subjects that we felt like we had a baseline knowledge of to build upon. Right. And so I I just think it reflects our comfort level with with research, with like cold calling people. I called people in Ghana when we were researching Queen Nzinga and I thought, okay, I really have gotten comfortable with just (laughs) picking up the phone (laughs) and asking a question. And when we cover it, it becomes a little disrespectful to just throw a spitball. Well, I hope that's the cultural norm we got right or whatever, you know, so. Right. So the short answer is no, we did not have a conscious moment where we decided we needed to focus on women of color. We have just slowly become more comfortable with the backgrounds. Mm hmm. And going back over them, this struck me. February is Black History Month, and they're not in February. (laughs) We never do the history months. We never acknowledge them. We just keep going through. Well, and I think that is because, and that is something we made a conscious decision on almost eight years ago, I think, that we're not going to confine subjects of color to one month. Mm -hmm. So we ought not to put them in that month sort of to emphasize the fact that it is part of history that we need to tell as a whole picture. Okay, so this is a blended question to people. Rebecca and Holly kind of asked the same question. You've likely come across some pretty cool roosters in your research. I mean, not as cool as the chicks you focus on, obviously. Who are the top five-ish roosters who stood out to you and why? I have a few that have intersected with some subjects. And then I have a couple at the end that I'm like, haven't intersected yet, but still, Mm -hmm. if I were to cover roosters that I would want to cover. So starting at the beginning here, Charlie Chaplin, I would like to cover. We interacted with him as one of Mary Pickford's business partners. And I think since she hated him so much that I can't wait to dig into his story and figure out if I also will dislike him, um, (laughs) icon that he was. And then second, Mr. Mark Twain. And I think this is because of our accidental or on purpose Gilded Age focus that we keep snapping back to these decades. But he interacts with so many of our subjects from Helen Keller to Empress Sissy that I would like to cover Mark Twain. And then Frederick Douglass, 
for, I think we mostly encountered him in our Elizabeth Cady Stanton podcast, but he has emerged in several other episodes. So I would like to talk about those gentlemen and Henry Eighth, even though it wouldn't be a positive portrayal. We kind of covered him a little bit during the teeny tiny tutor tutorial, which I would say over and over because I love it so much. <laughs> As do I. I love a good alliteration. And then two that bear no relationship so far to anyone we've covered that I would like to cover, Ernest Hemingway, mostly because I would like to give him the dirty eyeball and we could have a glorious alcoholic snack while recording. (laughs) I think we talked about him in Dorothy Parker. Oh, yes. But he was a tertiary character. Yeah. Oh, he was. Yeah. We just passed him on the sidewalk. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Actually, our lists are almost identical. I added Leonardo da Vinci to mine. And I think we touched on him in Artemisia Gentileschi, but don't quote me on that. Like just, again, a passing glance. And then someone that really has, honestly, no relationship to anything in the History Chicks universe yet but has a giant influence on my personal life, I would like to cover Superman and the origin of Superman, mostly because my husband looks like, you guessed it, Superman, (laughs) to the point where he, in his incarnation as a deli owner, was delivering sandwiches to an office building downtown and the elevator door opened and a woman grabbed the wall. He was wearing a Superman (laughs) t-shirt. Grabbed the wall and said, oh, God, Superman, this has been a really bad day. I'm so glad you're here. (laughs) We had toyed, and it's still on the table, with the idea of doing a couple of Rooster episodes with men in our lives that are either podcasters or radio announcers or authors or, in fact, people that look like Superman. So... Uh, you know, I want to listen to that. I totally want to listen to you and Chris talk about <laughs> Superman. I think it's good. He checked out books and everything. That's as far as we've gotten. But I think it's an exciting um, prospect. Time is not on our side, as we will learn in section two. But um, yeah, if time were not an issue, those are projects I would like to pursue. You know, the one that we did get to talk about, because we do get to work our roosters in, Statue of Liberty, Wizard of Oz, L. Frank Baum, Wizard of Oz. I adored him so much. Mm-hmm. So we did get to cover him pretty thoroughly. We had covered Lewis Carroll kind of thoroughly. So we've snuck some roosters in. You just didn't know it. <laughs> Hiding in plain sight. That's right. <laughs> Malia wants to know, have you ever been contacted by a direct descendant or a close family member of your more contemporary subjects? If so, what did they have to say? I didn't file emails this way, so I don't have an exact answer. But to my recollection, I do not believe we were contacted by family members. Although I really, really wanted to hear from relatives of Wilma Mankiller to make sure that we did her story justice. But we didn't. We did hear from Isadorables, some Isadorable descendants who listened to our Isadora Duncan episode. Usually, if we hear from anybody, we'll hear from one of the authors we talked about, maybe a museum that we discussed, like the uh, homestead, a home of. We'll hear from those people. And I don't believe there's been anything 
negative. They've all been very favorable. I was um, a little starstruck hearing from a curator at the Charlotte Bronte Museum, Mm -hmm. clarifying which pronunciation I should use. So (laughs) that was epic. And as um, previously mentioned, I am waiting on a message back from the Jane Addams Museum. The whole house museum is what it's actually called, um, which is actually closed as it's part of the National Park Service right now. So coronavirus has robbed us of museums as well as open spaces. So there you go. All right. Lauren asks, are there any subjects you didn't really like as a person besides the obvious Elizabeth Battery one? I answered for Beckett and it was Julia Child. I know this surprises people and I have a chip on my shoulder about Julia Child. And it all stems from the fact that These two ladies that were writing a cookbook asked her to participate and she took over the project to such an extent that if you polled a thousand people, they wouldn't be able to tell you the name of either of the two other ladies that participated in that cookbook. And and I don't know why that doesn't sit well with me and that she was sort of dismissive of... um, what am I going to say? Like dismissive of other people's input. And so I don't know. I just felt like she's someone that I would not have liked to hang out with for very long, I think. If you call it that way, not like to hang out with for very long, or they wouldn't want to hang out with me. (laughs) My list is really pretty long. Because there's Coco Chanel, Wallace Simpson, Louise Brooks, actually. And these women all did things that I am amazed at and their strength. And I learned things from their stories. But as people, I, I don't think I'd have anything to say to them. Well, Louise Brooks and I do have in common the, woo, girl, we got out of Wichita. (laughs) I've been to Wichita one time. (laughs) That is an extraordinarily slim basis on which to build a friendship, however. And I doubt it would have lasted. Although I think if if you entertained her, she would at least pretend to like you for a while. And maybe if you just want to meet someone for a drink, that's all you need. But I don't think we would ever be bosom friends. No. I don't think I would dislike her personally. I just don't think I would, you know, phone her up or or whatever. I think Julia Child is really my only one. I mean, Lizzie Borden, obviously. Come on now. I just oh. don't think I'm going to hang out with Lizzie Borden. And, and, you know, some of them would be heavy weather, you know, like a Mary Todd Lincoln would be tough, but I don't dislike her. And I understand why she behaved the way she did for the most part. So I don't have a long list. I really don't. I am really mostly on people's sides. Yeah. Oh, I'm on their side. That's why I had a hard time answering it. But then I twisted it to think, okay, who would I want to sit down and share a bottle of Prosecco with? You know, who, who could I talk to? And those are the three names that popped into my head. For the most part, I think we have to like them a little bit. We have to admire them before we can talk about them. Or at least understand their motivations. Right. Because, you know, people are just people and and not everyone is all bad, except for maybe Elizabeth Bathory, original <laughs> poster of Question. You are right, because we struggled, as one does, when faced with dogs walking around courtyards with human arms in their mouths. Somehow, we couldn't find any thing to link up to <laughs> on a friend base. I mean, yeah, I no, I don't think so. No. Mm-mm. All right. Well, former subjects seems to be covered. We will revisit them in section three.
Quick question. What's for supper? I get this question every single day from my family. You know, I don't mind the cooking. I just don't like the planning to cook. Fortunately, I have HelloFresh to take care of that for me. You know HelloFresh, right? They're America's number one meal kit. And they deliver tasty, pre-portioned food right to my house that I can easily whip up and ta-da, that's for supper. Like this week when my family asks me, one night I'm going to say, well, we're having Frank's Red Hot Spiced Crispy Chicken Mashed Potatoes and Green Beans. Another night I get to say, oh, we're having fully loaded pork taquitos. There's something for everybody in my family, including low-calorie, vegetarian, and kid-friendly recipes. Why don't you let HelloFresh answer the question of what's for supper for you? Go to HelloFresh.com slash 80HistoryChicks and use the code 80HistoryChicks. That's the number 80. And you'll get a total of $80 off your first month. That includes free shipping on your first box. Additional restrictions might apply. So please visit HelloFresh.com for details. That's HelloFresh.com slash 80HistoryChicks. questions about the podcast behind the scenes. What Edie would like to know is... Edie, who has known us both from the original source of having a met, we have known Edie as long as we've known each other. That's true. We've known some of these people for a very long time. Mm -hmm. It makes me very happy. What Edie would like to know is, after doing the many seasons of History Chicks, have y'all got into the point of, eh, these women are not quite so much interesting women? Have you exhausted your excitement of research, or is each new woman as exciting as those first episodes? So the number of times I have wanted to pick up this telephone and text Susan about something like, no way, did you know she knew so-and-so? Or this next subject we're trying to cover is like, ah, mm, mm, mm. <laughs> I know, she did break the rule and she just said one thing. And I was like, yes, I wanted to ask you that very question. So, usually we're I mean, on the same page as far as that goes. So, um, no, the answer is the excitement is pretty much always still there. I actually was so excited with my research into Aunt Jemima that I transformed that into a presentation for my day job, which is with a, how shall I put it, major food conglomerate and they are rolling out some of that work into their own training material. So, no, you can you never know <laughs> what's going to happen and that's the exciting part, I think. The day that we say, "Eh, none of these women are exciting me. Eh, we've heard that story before is the day we stop." I get so excited when we decide on a subject and that first flush of joy going to the library, which I have to do online still, but that's okay. And like getting every single book I can find that sort of relates to it. And when I go pick them up, it's like Christmas. I'm like, oh my gosh, look at all these books. And then I'm like, oh dear, I have to read them. <laughs> but that excitement part is definitely still there. Yeah. Sometimes you're really tired and and it's fine. You know, you can be tired, but in your mind, you're still so excited. And I always have like a running thought about the next subject going through my head. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's good. Mar Ann would like to know, who have you really wanted to feature but couldn't find enough material to do so? So we originally, at the peak of Hamilton's fame, wanted to cover the Schuyler sisters. And at the time, there was 
silence left on purpose. There was nothing really out there where we felt comfortable because we need more than one source, of course. And so we decided instead to interview an author who is currently researching a book. Now, since that episode aired, there have been multiple books that have come out about the Schuyler sisters and more information. So that is one that we're not going to count out for the future. Someone I really, really want to cover, but unless somebody invents a time-traveling machine, I don't think we could make her any more than a minicast, is Athelflaed, Lady of the Mercians from the 800s. And the further back you go, the more you sort of have to fill in the lady-shaped hole in history by covering all the men that surrounded her. We encountered that with Agrippina. A lot of people ask us to cover Betsy Ross, and there is a story there, but it revolves around all the men in her life. And she had a little bit of an interesting story, but I don't think that there's enough material out there just on her for us to put together an hour. And then sometimes what we encounter, even though we are in different library systems and we are now sort of connected to people around the world that can help us with research and in articles, we sometimes encounter a subject that there are some resources that are available to us locally, but we're still kind of waiting for the holy grail of information. And what I'm thinking about in that case is um, Rani Lakshmibai, who Mm -hmm. uh, is an Indian revolutionary, basically. And we would love to cover her, but locally, it's been very hard to find sufficient material. So there's a lot of reasons we may not have been able to gather things. So... If I don't find enough material through my library, I will go and buy any books I can. I, I've spent more on books, I think, since we've had this shelter in place than I ever have in my life because I've just been buying books instead of going to like a different library or something or waiting for them to come to my library. I bought a lot of books. <laughs> Last time I actually bought a sissy book that was in, I think it's German by accident. So like, <laughs> I got it. I was like, dang, this is no help to me. <laughs> what? You haven't passed your Duolingo German? No, I haven't even started Duolingo German. <laughs> sorry. Oh, this is related. Audrey would like to know, how many hours of research typically go into an episode between the two of you? I'm always amazed by the amount of work that's put into each topic, exclamation point. Thank you for noticing, Audrey. I think that the true and honest answer is almost infinite uh, because... Simultaneously, while we are acutely researching or putting together our notes with the stack of library books and, you know, all the answers to our questions in front of us, we have been reading, listening to, watching things for other future subjects. So there's a lot of, and I refer to it as like summer stock theater, where you're preparing for one show in the day and then you perform a different show at night. And I think our whole life has been functionally summer stock history research. I mean, we read on the bleachers at baseball. We pin Pinterest things in the pickup line at school. We listen to biographies while we're doing our day job. (laughs) (laughs) I do it when I'm walking, but yes, or cooking. Yeah. If we are awake, in general, we are at least thinking. And the way my mind works is that I collect a bunch of things and then almost subconsciously 
my mind kind of fits them into place. So it really helps to have things percolate as far as I'm concerned. That's how I learn things. Mm-hmm. I would almost say just almost every hour that there is. Yeah, I, you know what? I tried to quantify it. <laughs> like I have numbers in front of me here. Let's just imagine we have five books that take, what, 10 hours each to read. But if you look at an audiobook, it could be 18 hours. I listened to one for Sissy, 18 hours. And so that's 18 hours already. You know what I mean? So, But I'm also doing other things, driving or walking. But I tried to quantify it. I got up to in the 100, 120 hours range, but it's hard to pin it down. But that's each. Well, and there's a subject that we haven't covered yet that we have sort of meant to cover for years. I think the fact that every time we check out (laughs) One of her biographies from the library, part one is three inches deep and it's a little daunting. So, um, so that lady has been, gosh, I mean, honestly, I think it was like 2013 when we had her on the list first and we still don't feel like, well, you know, (laughs) who? I, I, yeah, I'm Eleanor Roosevelt. Oh, I don't cover. I don't want to cover Eleanor Roosevelt for superstitious reasons. Yeah. I thought it was Marie Laveau that was our curse. No. Eleanor Roosevelt, we never covered her, but we were like, yeah, let's cover her. And we started reading, or maybe I started reading, I got a book and I started reading it and something really bad happened in my personal life. So I put the book down and then you and I talked about covering her. So I picked the book up again and then something else bad happened. So, I mean, really catastrophically bad. So every time I think of Eleanor Roosevelt, unfortunately, I think of these bad things instead of how wonderful she was. I know just reading, getting through it and covering her will cure me of this. I realize that, but I'm not ready. My mom is getting older. I'm not, I'm not going to take any chances. <laughs> <laughs> kind of related to that question, Lori asked, how do you decide who to research? How do you research? I know you keep separate notes, but how do you merge them so seamlessly? How do you record and plan on who's going to say what and when? How do you record and how much editing is involved? Um, okay, that's a lot of questions. <laughs> and you know what? I do want to say in my 100-ish, 20 hours-ish <laughs> answer for the previous one, that's kind of including a fast edit. There's things that go into the show that don't have anything to do with research. Editing this episode, we're going to go through and rearrange things a little bit and take out some sidebars that we had and just make it easier to listen to something we would want to listen to rather than something really long and rambly, like I'm doing with this answer right now. (laughs) Show notes. The show notes take some time. You have to not only write them, but you have to find all the links and books and photos and get them sized and framed. And there's a lot of work that goes in to getting an episode up that has nothing to do with research or recording. There's a behind the scenes. Um, what's the rest of the question? I'm sorry, my phone's dying, so I keep oh, turning oh, it off. How do you how do you record and plan on who's going to say what and when? I think that's kind of a magic we have. Well, it helps a little that we have traditionally stuck with a birth to death format. Sometimes we'll have to call each other and say, okay, do we want to cover the books all in a clump or do we want to put uh-huh. the children all in a clump? Right. Um, I know those have been several things that we have wondered or like all these wars, do we just want to mention them in one little area? Do we want to sprinkle things where they actually happen? That kind of thing. But for the most part, we are working with the same 
basic outline, which is the story of someone's life from beginning to end. So we do have a structure. One of us will talk for a while. The next person will talk. If things intersperse, we will edit them that way. We will intersperse them. It's important that both of us get to be excited about a fact that we discovered because we have a policy of not talking to the other person for the most part about our episodes before we record them. As for how do we decide who's going to say what and when, you kind of touched on it, but we do something that I notice, and every time we do it, I get kind of a little flutter in my stomach because one of us will just stop talking. Right. Right. (laughs) To kind of give the other person an opportunity, this is the time if you want to jump in. You know, maybe that's not natural, but I think it's become natural to us. I think there's a lot of um, maybe laughter behind Sometimes that we have to kind of pause for laughter like one does in the theater. But yes, I think we do. We we just leave room for the other person. How much editing is involved? It depends. So it does depend. But on average, we have double, in some cases, triple the material that we end up with as a finished product. I would say that double is a genuine rule of thumb. Now that incorporates also children coming downstairs and asking for the 900th time what food we have, even though they know you're recording. It involves waiting for helicopters to pass overhead. (laughs) Uh, In the case of my house, which is sort of in a downtown area that is in the flight path of several hospitals. So we've got a helicopter noise and then I live right by a four-way stop. And I tell you, Muffler Shops of America, you have some work to do. Because the pause for muffler is, yeah. Quite frequently, we'll start to say something because this is conversational. We don't have it a script. We have our notes of what happened and the order we want to say them in and maybe a clever phrase we want to use. But for the most part, it's conversational. So if we start to say something and we just get tripped up and it doesn't make sense, we'll start all over again and edit out that first section. So that's included in that double or triple. And of course, (laughs) there's a lot of stopping to pronounce words (laughs) slowly and phonetically before we say them, you know, like we've always known how to say it. As to how we record, we record through Squadcast, which is a program that records both of our tracks separately. We, once upon a time, early listeners would know, we sat at my table at the House of Wood, (laughs) which is what we (laughs) call my house as there's no soft furnishings in here. It's a house of wood from the early days of of Kansas City. So we sort of, I don't 100% remember why we stopped. I think there was the benefit of having gone to two microphones, which was, was good. And then just the fact that Susan has to drive practically an hour one way to get here, combined with the fact that I had work that I had to do outside of the home and it made our scheduling very tough. And we didn't want the scheduling to become, you know, prohibitive. Right. And so we had to adapt. And it actually helped us because when the pandemic started, we were already not having to scramble. We had our our ducks in a row. So, right. Yeah, for me, it was always I was racing to meet the bus so I can take my son to places. And I didn't like it at first because I really loved seeing my friend on a regular basis and it was different. But now that we've been recording separately for so long, we go even before we had to stay in our houses or in our little pods We could go six months, eight months without actually (laughs) laying eyes on each other, although we communicate 
almost every day. Something small sometimes. Yeah. Well, and then the, the of course, I have um, what might be considered the world's largest collection of alcoholic beverages. And so Susan was immediately cut off from refreshment. <laughs> So I started my own. <laughs> I don't have the same supply chain that you had mm. the husband who worked in the industry. So I have to go and buy them. At the very beginning of this shelter in place, when everybody's like, I'm going to learn to bake bread. I'm going to start a sourdough starter or whatever. I didn't start one, so I don't know what it's called. I was like, I'm going to learn how to make different cocktails. But then I put on a couple pounds for drinking all these cocktails and I'm like, okay, I'm going to stop doing that. Uh, I am so sorry. I don't know the name of the person who asked a question that now that drunk history is is gone. And if you haven't heard about that, I'm sorry to spring that on you. Would you consider doing kind of a DIY version? Now, if you were to go back to our Jane Austen episode, we were fully into a syllabub at the time of recording that episode. And it's not like we were cockamamie or anything, but that syllabub was supposed to serve a lot more than it did. And it it had a whole bottle of wine in it. So I don't really know um, what I did wrong with regard to service. It looked fabulous and um, tasted great. So I guess the answer is perhaps. Perhaps you've already experienced a little DIY drunk history and you just didn't know because we're such refined lady persons. <laughs> and is drunk history is funny without the actors reenacting it? Yeah, you need the visual element, I think. Yeah, I think you, you need the visual element. I don't think it would be as funny. No. We did a bourbon tasting during Carrie Nation. That was funny. That was also very disrespectful of us, but also I do think it was funny. I did. Yeah, we did. I feel exactly the same way. And we tested Lydia Pinkham um, during Lydia Pinkham. But that didn't have any alcohol in it anymore. Um, I don't know. I think it does. Maybe it oh, didn't. It just tasted like dandelions. It was super gross. I remember that. <laughs> super gross. And then we had aviator cocktails. I had a cocktail during Mary Pickford. What was it? I don't know. I think it was purple. <laughs> well, I remember drinking some Spanish uh, wine that had like green in the name, like Verde. Or oh, something. Vino Verde. Thank you. Vino yeah. Verde. I don't remember what that was for, though. That was when we were recording together. I think it was just freelance because it's Portuguese young wine. And I don't think we've. <laughs> no, I think it was just like, hey, look, what's in the fridge? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I don't think it would be that funny. <laughs> it would be a lot of editing <laughs> that I don't want to do to you. No. Rebecca asked a question near and dear to my heart and Beckett's. Since the Chicago World's Fair comes up in a staggering number of your episodes, would you consider sidestepping to do a show about that event? That is not beyond the realm of possibility. Oh, I just put yes, period. <laughs> yeah. So yes is the short answer. Yeah. We don't really answer to anyone, so we can do whatever we want with this show. And that we is a spectacular thing to say. Say it again. We don't answer to anyone. Uh, we don't really answer. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to hear it again. So okay. I'm sorry. I laughed in the middle. Go ahead. Okay. We don't really answer to anyone. So <laughs> as far as the content of the show goes, we can do whatever we want. I mean, we don't even release our schedule. I had an advertiser ask for a schedule the other day. I'm like, no, sorry. It's fluid is what I said. Is that a good answer? <laughs> it's a true answer. I know. It's a very true answer. We have bagged episodes days before production mm -hmm. for no reason, some reason, not feeling it. You know, not I have a headache. It. 
not feeling it seems valid because the passion for the subject is what drives the show, I think. And, and if something struck you the wrong way, and we'll generally go back and, you know, revisit whoever it was that got bumped, but we have bumped people. I remember the very first one. I don't know if I should say her name because she's on the list. All these women are on the list is so long. It's very hard to get a new name on it that has enough material. But Gertrude Bell was the first, I'm just not feeling it. I mean, she had an interesting life, but you said, I'm just not feeling it. It's like, okay. And we scrambled and did something else. Yeah. I don't even know who we were going to cover when we decided to cover Phyllis Wheatley because she was a late minute change. I don't remember who we had been researching and planned for that episode. But. Honestly, I know people are surprised we can't remember that stuff, but it really builds up. And it is a matter of that we have been through two or three times as much material as you've heard on the show. And so not, not everything think can stick out. I remember somebody told me a joke and I'm like, I, mm. they're like, yeah, you said it in this episode. I thought I have no memory of this, but I was super funny. Tina writes. I know you only do ladies who've passed away, but if you could, which modern day lady would make your first podcast? Okay, so we are not as prepared as the British officials who have been preparing for this event since 1960 with Operation London Bridge, but, and we don't want to hasten anybody's demise, but I will say the Pinterest board for Queen Elizabeth II has been completed for a number of years and is packed in ice. Books have been purchased. Background has been investigated. And we are not going to be first out of the gate with a giant podcast series on Queen Elizabeth. But I would say of the modern ladies, she probably is going to rise to the top of someone that we would cover. That's what I would say. Mm -hmm. I have a list of three names, but that's a way better answer. <laughs> well, and then who else do who else do you have? On my list is uh, Maya Angelou, who died in 2014. P.L. Travers, who died in 1996, which is 24 years ago. But what? it just doesn't <laughs> change. I know. My oldest child was born in 1996. I'm like, oh, no, that was just, oh. <laughs> oh, dear. And there's someone who... Um, there's a woman named Rita Levy Maltalcini who died in 2012, and she was a neurobiologist who won a Nobel Prize. Uh, she was Italian. She was Jewish. She was a feminist living during Mussolini's time. She had a very turbulent early years, and she actually said, if I had not been discriminated against or had not suffered persecution, I would never have received the Nobel Prize. So that goes back to one of the other questions. Did their childhood affect their, this one in this case? Yeah, it did. When we covered Wilma Mankiller, she died within the last 10 years. And I was so nervous because it's so recent. Mm -hmm. Bella Abzug, she's in my timeline, you know. We could cover her now. Here's the question. Oh, there's a lot of questions on this one. Would you guys ever write a book? What's the status of the book? There's no longer a release date on my Amazon pre-order. I hope it's still coming. And is there any news on when your book is being released? So just imagine this is one of those tweet things, you know, being thrown at you. All these questions. Questions about the book, Beckett. So the book's delay, I would say, is largely my fault. I took on... They found me, honestly, and then I accepted a pretty giant job with a major corporation. And honestly, I am, I have just also been given a giant, giant client. I didn't mean for that to rhyme. So <laughs> my time is so stretched right now 
that I am a little despairing. Also, um, my child is virtual learning at home. There's a lot of balls in the air. So that is why we had to cease production on the book. Now the book is still, it's still there. It's still being written in our inimitable style. And one day we hope it will emerge. We fled for solace to the one of the authors of the book that started our podcast to marry an English lord who said that they similarly struggled with lifestyle obstacles before their book could come out. Never fear. I'm so glad they left it up there. That implies optimism on the publisher's part. So you should take heart from that. I looked it up just a little bit ago. There is a release date of June 2022, which... Oh. Yeah. And here's the thing. The thing about the book, this all these questions about it that just tickles me to death is we never mentioned it on the show. We never mentioned it in social media. We wanted to quietly get it done before we talked about it. But when the publisher put the presale up, somebody found it. And we were like, in the presales, we were like number four or something of all their books. I took a screenshot because I know it'll never happen again to me because so many of you pre-ordered a book that we never talked about and wasn't finished, which just added a little more pressure because we're like, ah. But I have to say, Beckett, the times that you and I sat across from each other at the downtown library in Kansas City and wrote together was some of the most fun writing time I've ever had in my life. And I've written things with other people before. Mm -hmm. But that was just, just, I think because our writing style is very similar to our conversational style. And you say something and I'll say something that sort of relates to it. And we just go back and forth and we have different words that we choose. I I just loved, it just gave me so much delight. We did, well, and will um, write in a very similar way that we will write, say, we have different color inks. Honestly, I forget which is which, but so <laughs> one of us is green and one of us is red. And then we'll write for a while and then we just pause and leave a space for the other lady to jump in with the narrative. And that's literally the way that we tell our stories on the show. So it really was pretty seamless. Also, <laughs> we tried our best when we were writing that book the queer eye guys were doing a live event because they filmed <laughs> a season in kansas city and we thought oh we're already like legitimately in here researching oh they're wise oh middle-aged ladies of all stripes were hiding in the stacks all over that library <laughs> that day and they had to roust everyone out of their hiding places and shoo them outside if they didn't have a ticket so we thought we were in with a chance but we never did get to meet them it was a bummer or even see them from way way afar <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that was too bad. We did breathe their air, or they breathed <laughs> our air. <laughs> Here's another thing that was happening and isn't happening and might happen. Sherry asks, I heard the mention of you guys going to London. Is that still on? And somebody followed up with, if you could pick now for a second History Chicks field trip after London, where would you choose? So the trip is still on. Um, In fact, my airline travel money is still tied up in airline travel. So I hope that all works out. It's just all in the air. Like everything in the world, the thing that stopped us from traveling was Corona and the pandemic. And so, yes, we missed out on our private tour of Highclere Castle and our trip to see Jane Austen's house. And in my case, I had tickets to a Chicago Cubs game in London accompanied by my Chicago Cubs loving father, which unfortunately will not happen, I don't think at this point. I was crushed for you guys when that happened. Uh, So that was a bummer, but never fear. um, It is still on the table, still a plan, still a great tour. We actually had talked about maybe going twice because there were so many people on the waiting list 
in addition, I would say either um, Paris or Austria, both because they they dovetail with a lot of our subjects. And then mm-hmm. Paris has a lot of sort of hidden gems. For example, there is a hand of the Statue of Liberty, a, a replica on top of the bridge where Princess Diana died that has become a uh, shrine to Princess Diana. And it, and it really sort of makes no sense except for as a focal point on the top of the bridge where the tragedy happened. Things like that are just epic. The Montmartre Cemetery, the Père Lachaise Cemetery, we could spend a whole day in there mm-hmm. with the amount of history you'll find just in there. So I would say Paris would be at the top of of my list. And then Austria, because we've got Marie Antoinette cruising through there and Sissy cruising through there and Marie Antoinette's mother. And it's just a lot, um, just a lot going on right through there. So that's what I would choose. I did talk with our contact at Like Minds Travel. Her name is Laura. I talked to her last week and I asked her if she wanted to uh, share anything. And her optimism for us going next June is so high. It was contagious because I was feeling really defeated about it. And she just was like, nope, I'm starting right now, starting to line things up again. Now, there are people who were not able to go next June. So some spots did open up. I don't know if there's a waiting list now or how long it is. But if it's something you're interested in, I'll put a link in the show notes. Now, as for where I would like to go... Yes, Paris is number one on my list. I have uh, Vienna and Corfu. I'd like to do a little (laughs) go back and forth because that would be awesome. The most realistic one, I think, would be Newport (laughs) and Boston. Nine days, do half of it in Newport, touring the mansions and just living Gilded Age air, and then go to Boston and Abigail Adams and Louisa May Alcott. There's so much history there that I think we could have a blast in Boston, too. So combining those two, I think, would be super fun. There you go. Madeline wonders, what is your ultimate dream in regards to the podcast or just life? Um. Okay, well, hmm. I don't know. I kind of think I am living the dream with the podcast because the whole purpose of starting this in the first place was just to share our love of history with people. And I I can tell you from the feedback we've received that I think I am receiving my gifts back daily. So moving on to the life portion, I am still determined (laughs) to get some kind of lake house. And it can be this little whack shack with a dock and some strings of lights and a charcuterie board at the end with a glass of wine. You know what I mean? It doesn't have to be <laughs> spectacular, but I, we have a boat. I don't know, whatever. This is dumb. But I read a book by Rosamond Pilcher called The Shell Seekers. And there is a series of chapters in there where the woman moves from London to this glorious house in the middle of an island like in the Mediterranean, and just the level of comfort and ease and just like being one's self in an environment full of books and colorful cushions and like fresh oranges that the juice runs down your arm and and you (laughs) swim lazily out to the boat and sunbathe and drink cold wine. And it's just like this level of like contentment Mm -hmm. is what I would strive for. And and I've been trying to create it a little more around here because that's realistic. (laughs) Um, But that's my ultimate goal, I think. I guess my ultimate dream would be to go hang out with Beckett at her <laughs> at her lake house. That sounds awesome. <laughs> my dream house would not be on a lake. It would be on the ocean, probably on the East Coast, Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard, not Nantucket. It takes too long to get there. Uh, so that that's just like a fantasy. That's not ever going to happen. 
as far as the show goes, it it went like beyond what I even could have thought of in 2011. In 2011, you know, it was podcasting was two people, one microphone, sketchy audio. The uh, you know that was fine, and it's come so far, and we just got in at a very good time. I think meeting people from around the world has been a dream fulfilled through the Mm -hmm. podcast. So that was, yeah, I I just want to be in a position that I can say yes to some things, which is how I got here in the first place, because Mm -hmm. I was at a time in my life where I had to make some decisions of what to do. And I was saying yes to everything. And so I said yes to Packet, and here I am. You know, there was a question posed that I don't see on this list in front of me that something to the effect of, did you know 10 years ago, if you had known how much work it was going to be, would you have kept doing it? And I actually think that's more of a question for you, because if we, as we have firmly established, I am as close to Hermione Granger as humanly possible in the (laughs) real world, like a person that did all their spelling book the first week and wished for more homework. And so I am the nerd that It's like, whatever, I don't care. Yay, you know. (laughs) But the real question is, were you ever at a point, Susan, where you were like, this is freaking more than I had committed to? Well, when we sat down to record Marie Antoinette, I mean, I was just clueless. I'd been a stay-at-home mom for 13 years. And I had been a college student many, many, many years before that. So this was honestly the first time that I ever studied anything. And my study skills completely sucked. (laughs) So I think I had that feeling when we were talking about Marie Antoinette and I was like, oh, I totally went in the wrong direction. (laughs) Oh no. So yeah, I've had that feeling. Um, I think once I got into the hang of it, once I became a faster reader, you've always been a really fast reader. I'm not to your speed at all, but I can read um, a whole lot faster than I used to. Um, I take better notes. I don't know that if someone had said you were going to be up all night as many times as you will be, I don't know if I would have done it, (laughs) quite honestly. I know. I joke that in the 20s, I didn't sleep because I was out in clubs. The 30s, I had a baby that didn't sleep. And in the 40s, I had a podcast. So (laughs) someday, maybe that's my ultimate goal is to sleep at some point. (laughs) Forget the lake house. I just want to go to bed. (laughs) Yeah, but if you have the lake house, you can sleep at the lake house and wake up at the lake house because waking up on vacation is the greatest thing because you're like, oh my gosh, the sky looks different and Mm. I have the whole day ahead of me and to enjoy that sleep I just had. So I would love that for you too. (laughs) And to answer the question about how we take notes, I have a strategy where I'll, I'll read a chapter and then I'll close the book and anything I can remember pretty much goes in my notes because I figure if it sticks in my mind, it is worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I do something similar to that because you told me that that's how you did it. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> All right. Wasn't working great the way I was doing it. I tend to read a children's book or a real small book or watch a documentary first just to enjoy it, not to take notes, just to enjoy it and to get the woman's basic life outline in my head. And then I'll go into the meatier books. And if I own the book, I'm sorry. Brace yourselves. Yes, I will write in it. Yes, I will dog ear the pages. Yes, I will fold the pages fully out and I am no respecter of the container. I 
believe in manipulating the information to my purposes. And if I own the book, I will take it in the bathtub. I will, you know. Yeah. (laughs) I am not kind to my physical books. However, I treat them like the Velveteen Rabbit, like they are beloved to me. And the evidence is that they look like (laughs) doo-doo. I am very sorry. I know there are people for whom that is like, I mean, I don't use bacon as bookmarks. That's whack. But but yeah, I will dog your page. <laughs> I'll dog your pages in my own books. All right. I've dog your pages in library books before. I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And I know that you, Mrs. Graham, one time wrote, um, you edited a chapter or paragraph, something in a book that was not right. It was really early on. No, no bells. Yeah, no. I mean, uh, that sounds like me. Yeah. I don't remember the specific incident, but I'm like, really with this, you know? Yeah. Perhaps, I think I wrote, perhaps seek out a new edition of this book. Okay. Okay. That's enough. Yeah. I said, dear future reader, take this <laughs> paragraph with a grain of salt. I'm pretty sure I said it was something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I. That's totally what you did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although in my defense, I think it was pencil. Yes. I In my head, it was pencil too. So, so so it is a misdemeanor. <laughs> That's right. Daisy wondered if we would consider a lightning round where we have a list of fun questions that we ask each other. And I don't have any. <laughs> I know. I don't have any fun questions queued up right now. And I might need an able assist because what kind of question would I ask you? I know a lot and you know a lot about me, probably too much. And they, frankly, probably know too much about us, too. So... <laughs> <laughs> I feel weird. I have to tell you, I feel weird about that. I started that job, the corporate job and the big VP. I mean, the giant. In fact, I think he was a AP and not a VP who is no longer there. So it's not as weird. He retired, but he was a long term listener. And so I think you know more about me, sir, than one's boss ought to know. (laughs) At this juncture in our relationship, Susan and I have known each other for a long time, even virtually speaking, before we started the show. I'm not sure <laughs> what what we have not revealed. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's a lot out there. <laughs> so we might need a little assist with that. So we will go back again to the lounge and um, maybe request some questions and we could answer them maybe in a different format. You know, yeah. The only question that I came up with was one that I just wanted people to know, and you already brought it up. What is something that you wished listeners would know that we've never had a chance to bring up? I wanted you to say your other job and how it takes up so much time, but you already did that. So yay. It does. And it uses the wrong side of my brain, which I guess is good. I'm never objecting to a little stretching. I mean, I always eat with my left hand and wash my hair with my left hand and, you know, building pathways is good, etc. But like, I am not this girl, this math girl. And that is where I f- have found myself lately in a mix of art and math. So I can hear the cylinders and smell the smoke from that <laughs> side of my head. Ah, <laughs> uh, Good times. And this is a good time for a little break. (laughs) 
So you've taught yourself bread making, you've painted your house. What's next? How about looking at Skillshare? Now is a great time to do things with our friends and our family. And Skillshare classes is something that we can all do together, but from our own homes. My son Noah and I have decided to take some classes. The first one we're going to be doing is called Fun with Faces. It's taught by a woman named Charlie Clements. She's a greeting card designer. And at the end of this class, we'll have learned how to make a fun and quirky portrait. I thought it sounded like something different, something that we've never done before. Skillshare members get unlimited access to thousands of inspiring classes and a community of millions to help us through them. Skillshare is also really affordable. I used to go to arts and crafts and wine classes with my friends. This is a lot less expensive. Explore your creativity and get two free months of premium membership at Skillshare.com slash chicks. That's two whole months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. Get started and join today by heading to Skillshare.com slash chicks. That's two free months of unlimited access to thousands of classes at Skillshare.com slash chicks. Here's something you don't know about me. I have had a sore throat for like a week and a half, which gives me a pleasantly to me more smoky quality to my voice, but I would rather have it disappear. (laughs) I've been drinking, you know me, not tea, but bourbon and it is not helping. Even though a listener, oh, thank you so much. I'm sorry. (laughs) Go ahead. Thank you so much. A listener named Sailor sent us some Uncle Nearest bourbon, which was so generous. Another listener sent us delightful masks, masks, I can't say that word, Uh, one for London and one for Paris. I had actually ordered something from um, her Etsy shop. And so that's how she had my address and she sent them to me. Another reward that we get is simply notes from all over the world telling us what the show has meant to you. So Honestly, we are living the dream of the podcast, having made an influence, having been used in schools or used in a nursing home to finally reach someone who'd really been withdrawn for a long time or helping you to communicate with your teenage child, just anything. I mean, it is it is just beyond rewarding to get those notes telling us where you are, what you're doing, who you are. So thank you. And we have already received our reward with regard to the podcast. True? Yes. Oh, yes. True. There's a girl named Adelaide who's 12 and she's been corresponding with us on and off because she and her friends get together and research a woman and then talk about her. It's lovely. So I just that's the kind of stuff I just it just gives me chills. That would have been a dream of mine, I think, in 2011, that people would break off and have their own conversations like we do. Now we begin section three. Here are some hypothetical situations. Alexa's situation. Would you rather marry Henry VIII or be the poorest peasant under his rule? Well, it kind of depends, I think, on a lot of factors. I mean, if you were the poorest peasant under his rule, you would have a very short experience. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, again, (laughs) how much suffering do you want? If you could go back as a modern person, modern woman, I, I guess, I just don't know. 
I think I think maybe just be the peasant and get it over with. Yeah, I don't think I'd ever want to be queen of anything except, you know, no, nothing. <laughs> queen of my castle. That's about it. That's not an easy job. I mean, there's some perks to being a queen, I suppose, and you could use your powers for good, but would you be allowed to in that court? So the possible benefits, I mean, who cares about the jewels or whatnot, whatever. And then are you participating in the whole, are you one of the six wives? There's a lot of variables. (laughs) I would need to get nailed down. Like, which one am I? Am I Anne of Cleves? Because in that case, might be worth it because she never had to encounter him, if you know what I mean. So yeah, I don't know. And he set her up in such a sweet situation that she was set without having to worry about palace intrigue and her husband finding somebody else. And yeah, she had the best deal. My gut was always a poorest peasant. Yeah, I don't want to be his wife. I don't Mm -hmm. don't think I could. I don't think I could do it. Moira and Katie both ask a similar question. What are the historical what ifs that keep you up at night? For example, if Catherine had gone back to Spain after Arthur had died, and what if the weather had been different at a historical event? Hmm. The only weather I could think of was the Spanish Armada and Elizabeth I, because the weather really helped them defeat this army that shouldn't have been defeated. Honestly, there's no what ifs in history that keep me up at night. The only what ifs that keep me up at night are modern. Oy. I know. However, okay, so to answer the specific question, though, if Catherine had gone back to Spain after Arthur died and, you know, not been sent back to England, obviously we would have had a whole different scenario. We wouldn't have had an Anne Boleyn situation. We therefore wouldn't have had Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. So I guess you have to ask yourself as a time traveler, even though it would have been better for Catherine personally to have peace outed and headed back home and been sent somewhere else. You know, she couldn't just rest in Spain, most likely, but it would have been better for her personally to cut and run, I think. Even if we could convince her to do that, how then would you justify to yourself as the time traveler that particular interference that leaves the world without an Elizabeth I? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? that's why... Doctor Who has it so hard. Mm -hmm. All those time travel shows, you don't mess with the timeline. However, a listener named Katie did put in a question. I always wonder what would have happened if Maria Carolina had become Queen of France and not her sister, Marie Antoinette. As you recall from episode one, Marie Antoinette was sort of the accidental victor. I put that in quotes. Of the throne of France. Uh, She was not supposed to have been the one to go. It was supposed to be her slightly older sister, Charlotte, known to history as Maria Carolina, who became, due to the death of one of their sisters, the replacement queen of Naples and Sicily at the age of only 15. So that's a theme in their family. So imagine if, let's call her Charlotte, because that's what Marie Antoinette would have called her. So if Charlotte had become the Queen of France and behaved the same way, she had 18 children. (laughs) She had 18 children. Even though she was not attracted to her husband, she said that she knew her duty was to ensure the succession. And I would say, you know, and more than half of those children died before they reached adulthood. So heartbreaking. And she fulfilled that duty by far. Her husband over in Naples and Sicily was deemed unfit to rule, so she simply took the reins and did it for him. In a quote that should sound scarily familiar, 
after you have listened to our Empress Sissy podcast, Napoleon once said of Maria Carolina slash Charlotte that she was the only man in the kingdom of Naples. (laughs) And Empress Sissy's mother-in-law was considered to be the only man in the Hofburg Palace. So I think that is a backhanded compliment from men of power toward women who are wielding power. So if this powerful and obviously experienced in Ed Time Matters person arrived on the scene to old Louis, I think things might have been different because rather than be passive, Maria Carolina would have taken charge and taken names and become feared in a way that Marie Antoinette obviously never was. Mm-hmm. And if Maria Antoinette had been swapped out for her, I don't think she was of the kind of person that would have done what Maria Carolina did. She would have landed somewhere, that's for sure. But she didn't have the drive or the intellect. She was young and wild. Again, this goes back to the childhood. How much of her childhood as, you know, the last and forgotten kid who could run wild while mama was taking care of all the other ones, how much of that affected her life once she became the Queen of France. Well, and I think in a large family, you have to kind of carve out your own niche. She was the baby. She was the little one, the one to be protected. She was the insignificant one. Whereas Maria Carolina was known as being just like her mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> who was a person who ruled as a woman in her own right. So having emerged with that personality, I think she maintained that as a child. And then when she went off, I don't live in Naples or Sicily. I think she was wasted there. I think if she had been sent to France, we would have seen a whole different story. And I am almost certain we would never have heard the name Marie Antoinette, except for in the Wikipedia entry, like siblings, Mm -hmm. you know, Maria Antonia of Naples and Sicily or what, wherever they would have sent her. It would have just been a footnote. Right. She may have lived a long life. She may have, in fact, had more children, you know, earlier. Who knows? But I do think Maria Car- Carolina would have been a giant hurricane at Versailles. <laughs> That's a great answer. Okay. Lindsay and Susan, who's not this Susan. I have combined their questions. What if Rudolph, Sissy's son, would have lived and ruled? Do you think World War I would have been any different? Well, I don't think it would have been any different at all. Uh, Rudolph wouldn't have even taken over. FJ didn't die until 1916, so we're already well underway by that point. So say Rudolph is alive right then. By 1918, the guy that actually did take over was losing everything. I mean, Czechoslovakia was leaving. Hungary was out of the alliance. The Slovaks and Croats and and Serbians were out. I mean, basically, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was crumbling like Voldemort at the end of Deathly Hallows. I mean, it was just turning into dust and blowing away toward other directions. and, And Germany was on the ascendancy. So I just don't know. However, Rudolph acted, if his two-year window between having gotten the throne and all of this happening would have been enough to move anything. I think it was already on the way, whatever he had wanted to do. However attached he was to democratic principles, I think Germany was tired of dealing with the Austrian Empire and wanted it gone. And Germany was the boss at that point. So 
I the only thing that I wonder in that scenario is if Rudolph had lived, would FJ have been able to get him under his wing and under control? And would Rudolph had an influence mm-hmm. on FJ, just like Sissy had done sometimes? Because he would have been in the mix and FJ would have been grooming him for the position. So there might have been some changes. I'm not that good in speculative history. The only thing that I am seeing just based on the way they were acting toward each other is that Rudolph was acting like one of those juvenile males that you see in the wildlife documentaries that are like attacking the silverback to see if they're strong enough to take over. And the silverback just is like whack with their little pinky and the guy flies (laughs) in there like nah. Also, FJ was... I mean, metaphorically, ideally, peeing a circle around his responsibilities. He's not going to share it with people. This is for him. This is not for for others. A- at least until you toe the line, you're not going to be part of my scenario. You know, like, mm-hmm. I-, I guess the whole thing hinges on would Rudolph have changed his philosophies? Or at least compromised them a little bit. Yeah. Or at least pretended to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. But he would have been in waiting for a long time. I mean, he he would have had to keep up that act or genuinely tow a different line for decades between when he died. So if he lived, you know, and when his father died, I, I just, you know, it's impossible to say what somebody it's impossible to say what somebody might have turned into as they aged. Oh, was that Big Bang? It was um, my phone falling off the table. Oh, <laughs> I thought it might have been a cat doing something. I don't know where the kitties are. Okay, Yvonne has another hypothetical situation for us. If you could live a day in the life of any chick, who would it be? And is there a specific day in her life you would choose? The only thing I can think of off the top of my head, especially since there's no um, (laughs) happy ending, is I think I might like to experience Marie Antoinette's last chapter coming into Versailles for the first time. Oh. You know, when she is at the end of her wedding journey and she pulls into the courtyard because I was there and it was functionally pretty empty and I was imagining what it would be like. It was January and people don't like wind in France. So everyone was hiding. (laughs) So we Mm -hmm. were there pretty much by ourselves. And I don't know, having seen it in the modern day, it would be neat to see it in all of its current splendor. Yeah. Also, as a current me inside of her body, I would not have been as thrown by people looking down their noses at me. Like in the back of my mind would be like, oh, you just wait for a few. You can be snooty now, but (laughs) you know. You just saying that it brought up a question that we had answered before, you know, a dream for the show. I think a dream for me regarding the show would be to visit as many of the birth homes or museums that were dedicated to our subjects. Hmm. I think that I would love to do that. Yeah. You know, I looked at the list because I'm like, okay, whose life would I want to live in? And I could think of things in everyone's life, like Empress Sissy, let's just say, I would love to live her life the day that she was crowned the Queen of Hungary or the day that she set sail for Madeira. You know, that feeling of freedom and breaking away from all the things that were causing her stress and being on the ocean. I think... I would love to live that day. And even Lady Bird Johnson, I would kind of love to live the day that she met Lyndon, not to tell her all those red flags, but those first dates with someone who's so charismatic are so exciting. 
So I would love to have lived that day for her and maybe left her a note (laughs) that says, watch out for these things. Or in my general quest for contentment, perhaps a day in the later life of Georgia O'Keeffe, where she had her sunsets and she had her garden and her peace and her creativity was still in force and um, she knew who she was and she didn't have, you know, any more doubts. She was secure in herself and her life and her being. And I just think maybe a day spent in that kind of sureness. I don't know. Do you take your own personal head into this day? Because I don't know. <laughs> I guess that affects my answer. <laughs> There's a series of YA books about a, a being who goes into somebody's life for a day. And that's it, just one day. And they take over their head and they have all their memories from every other life that they've taken over their entire life. And their goal is to live this life as best as they can, as close to the person whose life they're living. So they experience their emotions and stuff, but they also have memories of their other days. Hmm. And I can't remember the name of the series. There was three books, Someday, Any Day, and there's another day. And JD and I talk about these books all the time, and I can't remember the author. Dang it. And I don't have my phone. Well, and there was some series, though, on TV years, decades ago called Quantum Leap, where I swear Hmm. that the guy's name was Beckett, but maybe his last name. But he went into somebody's life and didn't know who he was, I think, for a day or a week or something and had to basically, there was something about that day or week that was faulty in the time continuity and he had to fix it and then he would get the like green light to move on and he could go but he had to spend the first like 20 minutes of each episode figuring out who even am I what year is this what yeah where am I you know so I don't know I like all that stuff here's a hypothetical that we get a lot will you be bringing back the recapery <laughs> um in an ideal world yes in an ideal world i see again i think this is my fault a fault i say in quotes but there you know there is a finite number of hours in every day and i am really almost double booking most of them yes ideally i would love to bring back the recapery that was so fun we covered tv series of historical interest or movies of same. And we loved our coverage of the crown. But rather than being a simple Elizabeth walks in the room, her dress is gorgeous. Then we move on to blah, blah, blah. We did deep dives into lots of historical facts. So it wasn't a matter of simply watching an episode and riffing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we started out as we meant to go on and then realized it's such a big time commitment. I would love to do the new season starts. We could try. We could try again. We could just do episode one and see how it goes. Yeah, I, that one surprised me doing the recapery. It surprised me that it morphed it into doing so much research. Because originally we were like, oh, let's just recap these shows. It'll be quick and little editing and very little research. No, we can't do it that way. <laughs> well, and we had just too high of standards for like, well, we can't let this go. People won't know what that tiara even is. Like, oh, <laughs> Lord. We can roll our eyes at ourselves even while we're doing it. We just knew it was going to be like that. So after a while, we d- we did know. We couldn't even cover Anne with an E without going into like, and the calendar on the wall says this date. You know what happened on this date? Blah, blah, blah. Oh, we're a mess. We're just a mess. I know. <laughs> we even had a whole 15-minute conversation about turnips. I remember this. Like We get into some glorious rabbit holes. Mm-hmm. 
but that's okay. And that's what made it really fun. So I sure would like to redo the recap. There, there was a question that came in if we didn't do a history podcast, what would we do? And honestly, I think the recapery is the dream of that other mm-hmm. show. And it was very well received. So, you know, ideally we'll revive it. If somebody could just put like 36 hours into a day, maybe you can swing all this. <laughs> I know. I know. I feel like there are days where I'm just like, oi. What day is it? Because I haven't slept. I know this about you. Becky. How much? I know. That's like a behind the scenes. There are many times at my age where I go two days without having slept. And then I become like narcoleptic. I'll be sitting on my computer and, and I'll have a mark of, you know, one Q, <laughs> UW on my forehead from the corner of my keyboard. Hmm. Or my husband will come down and say, well rested. And then you just want to punch him, kind of. <laughs> Weekends and nights are for the show. <laughs> I can't say that. Because <laughs> I got laid off my job, my other job in December, and I don't have another one. So this is, it's not the only thing I'm doing, but it's the main one. So to recap from all the questions, we are living the dream of what we set out to do when we started the podcast. Your enjoyment of it is exactly what we had wanted. So that's great. Still having optimism. The glass is over half full with Prosecco about the book. (laughs) We have not given up hope. You know what? Let's make it stronger. It is full with Uncle Neris bourbon from Sailor about the book getting done. So yes. We can take it to the bank. I we're we're gonna say we will eventually. <laughs> now I'm not giving you a timeline. Let's let's not get too crazy. But we we are still feeling good about that. We feel like we have leeway on that. So hooray! And we would love to bring back the recapery. And there's that. We are so grateful and happy to have the lounge. If you are not there yet, it is something else in there. We really like it. And it has evolved into such a great community that are meeting each other up until pandemic time outside of the group. And, you know, people are just changing the world in their own way. So we're very happy. I have nothing to add. So thanks for the questions. And thanks for listening. Bye. Follow us on Instagram, won't you? You can talk to Susan on Twitter. And you still have time to join the lounge and enter the baking challenge this week where the subject is noted temperance warrior, Carrie Nation. I will almost guarantee you that everyone is going to make a cocktail because we all have that kind of sense of humor. So join in. All the songs today were from our old friend, James Harper, performing as Harper Active. And the end song is his remix of Vivaldi's Four Seasons. See you next time for one of our regularly scheduled biography episodes.